I just want to publicly thank all of you for making me feel so loved. It's uh, great to be a part of your community, part of your lives, and um, just, yeah, not going any further because I might cry. But if you know anything about me, if you've come to know me at all in the last three years since we've been here, you'd know that I like superheroes. Yeah? Yeah? Okay. Anything superheroes. I love superheroes. Um, I watch about five different superhero shows each week. And so like Arrow, Flash, Supergirl, Legends of Tomorrow, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Gotham, and let's add Black Lightning onto that list. And so there's actually seven. There's one for each day of the week that I watch. That's kind of ridiculous. And um, that's not including any superhero movie that comes out in theaters. If something comes out that's superhero related, I'm there. Even if it's Suicide Squad, um, I'm there. Suicide Squad was a letdown, guys. Like, it was horrible. <laughs> but don't get me started about superheroes. Don't get me started about comics, because uh, you may not know this, but I'm a nerd. And I love comic books. You may know this, but I'm a nerd. And I love comic books. There's something that you can get in comic books that you can't get in movies, no matter how well they're done, or TV shows, no matter how long they're running. And it's like a depth of character and depth of story. And so, uh, I love reading comics, I love reading Batman, it's my favorite superhero, and yeah, okay. I personally believe that Marvel has nothing on DC Comics, and so that's a pretty bold statement, but come at me when you can think of better um, superheroes than Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, uh, Flash, uh, Green Arrow, Cyborg, all that, yeah, okay, here it is. Um, I could continue, but Marvel really only has Black Panther. That's about it, and um, maybe Captain America. Um, but yeah, so I'm just saying, put the Justice League up against the Avengers anytime. Not the cinematic version, but the actual. Well, they're not real, but uh, the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Superheroes are a big deal for me, and. Uh, today, one of my best friends actually got me a book for my birthday that's like God and Gotham. <laughs> and so, <laughs> talking about like how the gospel is seen through the streets of Gotham and the comics. And yeah, it's actually pretty great, but I'm getting somewhere with this. I think superheroes are near and dear to my heart because it's this story of good versus evil. It's a story of no matter how crazy things get, how many aliens attack a world or whatever it looks like, there's always hope. Um, as one of my favorite movie quotes, the night is always darkest before the dawn. And there's always hope in that. There's always a light to come. And superheroes, these, this whole genre just brings that out. But if you were to ask me, Josh, okay, cool, you're, you're into superheroes, but who's your hero of the faith I'd have a different answer. It wouldn't be Batman, uh, for sure. It wouldn't be Superman, even though he's pretty awesome. Um, it probably wouldn't be the Apostle Paul. Um, I know that's, that's heretical, but uh, even though he wrote three quarters of the New Testament, he uh, helped start the early church. Uh, amazing, bold man of faith. It wouldn't be Martin Luther, who uh, started the Reformation by writing a critique of the Roman Catholic Church at the time. It wouldn't be William Wilberforce who actually started the abolition of the slave trade and the British Empire. These are all great men of God, great monuments of the faith. I could go on listing men and women who have made significant impacts 
in Christianity. But for me, if you ask me who my hero of the faith was, does anyone know it? <laughs> Brittany. <laughs> that would have been a really good answer on love tonight. So, but no, it's this guy. His name's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Anyone? Yeah, good old Bonnie. He, he uh, yeah. <laughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you don't know who this guy is, he's amazing. I think besides Jesus, besides Paul, besides Scripture, and besides Brittany, um, this guy has shaped so much of my ministry philosophy, so much of who I am. His writings have changed my life. And I can remember the day my resident director gave me his book, Cost of Discipleship. And it probably changed the course and trajectory of, uh, of how I follow Jesus and how I walk that out. But a little bit about Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, he was a pastor in Germany during the height of World War II. Really hard time to be a pastor in a really hard country to be a pastor. As a result of their defeat in World War I, Germany was in this great economic depression. And to most Germans, at the time, Hitler appeared to be the nation's answer to prayer. Unfortunately, a lot of Christian pastors actually even affirmed this, and one pastor at the time even went as far as to say, Christ has come to us through Adolf Hitler. As Hitler rose in power, though, and as his anti-Semitic remarks started coming out, his anti-Semitic actions started being seen, his rhetoric and actions intensified Bonhoeffer, he began opposing Hitler, opposing the Nazi regime. He speaks out against the Nazis, and together with other theologians and pastors, he forms his own denomination of sorts called the Confessing Church. And they, in this hostile time, they say, my allegiance is first and foremost to Jesus Christ. During the rise of the Nazi regime, Bonhoeffer, he called Christians, began writing books and writing essays and saying, there should not be a thing called comfortable Christianity. In one of his uh, sections in a Cost of Discipleship, he talks about cheap grace versus costly grace. The idea that Jesus' death cost him something, grace cost something to Christ, so it has to always cost something to us. That if it doesn't cost us something, then it's cheap and worthless. And so, um, as you can tell, like Bonhoeffer was this fantastic guy who wrote a lot of great things, but he also did some cool things. He taught pastors in an underground seminary during the Nazi regime. And once that was found out, and once pastors started becoming silenced more and more, he actually joined the German Secret Service as a secret agent, um, kind of as a double agent while traveling to church conferences over Europe. Bonhoeffer would um, plan, on collect, plan to collect information about places that he visited and reality, he was actually trying to help Jews escape Nazi oppression. Ultimately, he becomes a part of a plot to overthrow Hitler, his leader of the Third Reich, and he's actually accused of conspiring to assassinate Hitler. Um, at one point, Bonhoeffer, he actually travels to America. He comes to America, he's in New York City, in he's a guest lecturer, but he can't take this feeling of responsibility to his country and to his people. And so within months of his arrival, he writes a letter to the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. And he says this, I have made a mistake in coming to America. 
I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. So Bonhoeffer packs up his things. He flies back to Germany, where on an April afternoon in 1943, he's arrested by the German SS. He's imprisoned for two years before be being moved to an extermination camp at Flossenburg. And then on April 9th, 1945, one month before the end of the war, before Germany surrenders, he's hanged with six other resistors of the Nazi regime. He's a pastor, turned secret agent, opposes Hitler, and he's martyred for speaking out and saying this is what Jesus would do. In his writing, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer, he writes in a prophetic way, he says, as we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives over to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Bonhoeffer's life, and the reason he's such a testament of faith to me and a superhero of the faith is his life was a legacy of love. And to love well, just like Bonhoeffer, we have to learn to die well. When Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids them come and die. Jesus, before he was crucified, he speaks to his disciples and he says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Every time I read this passage, I'm struck by the amount of times that Jesus says love one another in two verses. He says love one another. That's how people know if Christians are true followers of Jesus is if we love others. Today, as we continue, as we wrap up our series on the themes from Corinthians and these Corinthian letters, we're going to look at Paul's words on love and how that works out in Christian community. Last week, we talked on the gifts of the Spirit, and in the second half of chapter 12, we covered the first half last week, but in the second half, Paul continues writing on that, fleshing that out a little bit more, but afterwards, he makes this very interesting statement. He says, so you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts, but now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. What? Paul, aren't the gifts of the Spirit what build the church? Aren't the gifts of the Spirit what this is all about? Aren't the gifts of the Spirit what allowed the church to spring onto the scene, powerful miracles, and the Spirit moving? This is it, isn't it? And Paul says, no. There's this different way of life. It is important to view the gifts of the Spirit in this way. But there's also a better way. 
Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. In no way here is Paul dismantling the need for the gifts in the early church and for us today as the church, but he's saying that we can do these things, we can operate in the gifts of the Spirit, but if we operate in these ways and we don't do it with love, then it's pointless. We're missing the entire point. How many of you know fantastic leaders who are great at their jobs? Show of hands. How many of you know fantastic leaders who are great at their jobs and love people? I would say that the two aren't mutually exclusive, that you'd have to have a fantastic leader who loves people and are good at their jobs. But imagine if people didn't care at all about the people they worked for or worked with, they didn't show compassion and empathy, if they didn't demonstrate love, how effective they would be in leading. Paul's setting up this passage to say that the church was so puffed up in Corinth with the spiritual gifts and with the move of the Spirit and doing the spiritual things, the spiritual actions, that they were missing the whole point, and it was to show love and to build each other up, and to show compassion and mercy. He's saying, well, good for you, but you're missing the point here. Paul continues, and in this section, I'd like all of us to read this together. So the words are up on the screen, the verses are. It says, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Here, Paul gives many descriptions of what love is. If you've ever been to a wedding, there's a very great chance that you've heard this passage read. Um, my dad actually had this passage read at his wedding, um, and I'm not even sure if my dad's a devoted follower of Jesus. It's, it's a beautiful portion of Scripture that's so applicable, even if we're not looking at it in terms of Scripture. But when we're looking at it as the voice of God speaking to us through his word, it brings a whole other level into this. What strikes me here is that virtually all of these instances of love involve what Jesus called a dying or a hating of your own life in this world. If we're praying for the Spirit of God to move in our lives and our community, we have to look like this. This love is the fruit that the Spirit of God bears. So if we're asking the Holy Spirit to come in our community, we should start seeing love look like this. So if we're on the right track, then there must be a dying within us before a reviving. Before there can be love, there must be death. 
this puts a whole new spin on the wedding sermon. And I'm actually, later in July, I don't know if you know Chris Carr. Um, Chris and Sydney, his fiance, are getting married. And I was laughing as I was writing this message because I'm like, well, I can't bring this to their wedding because it's going to just put a whole damper on the mood. But I think I'm going to explain this in a minute. But to truly love, we have to truly die to ourselves. Let's take a look at a few of these descriptions here. We're not going to cover all of the verses um, or all the instances just for the sake of time. We're going to look at a couple. Verse 4 and verse 5, it says, Love is patient and love is not irritable. I think that by nature, none of us like being interrupted. Especially when things are going well. I'm one of these people. If I'm working on something and I'm interrupted, I feel this like weird something boiling up inside me. Like, I'm like, oh, please just stop talking to me. Let me finish this task. How many of you have been in the library working on a paper and someone come and slam their books down and just start talking to you? How many of you, like, look at that person, roll, their, roll your eyes, turn your music up in your headphones and just, like, please stop. Like, let me finish this paper. That's me. That's me. I don't like being interrupted. And so um, it's rough. I'm horrible at this. I go through life expecting everything to go my way and nothing to ever be delayed. I expect to drive through DC traffic and it part the Red Sea and I just be able to go down Massachusetts Avenue. No red lights, no brake lights, no one yelling with a middle finger out the window. That's my life. I expect that. I expect there to be a parking spot directly in front my, of my apartment building and the exact amount of space for my car, exactly when I need it. And Natalie and Britt are looking at me and laughing because they're the two people that see this happen more often than anyone. That doesn't happen in my life. Traffic doesn't part ways. There's never the parking spot where I need it. And if that parking spot's there in front of my building, it's always a half a, half a car length too small. It doesn't work. I have to circle the block, and I'm normally pretty frustrated by this time. Just the other night, this happened. The story I'm about to tell you. Brittany and I, we had a date night. We had a babysitter. She got it set up. We were going to go out, um, check one of our DC bucket list items off, and go to Ben's Chili Bowl on U Street. Yeah, it's, it's great, um, as great as chili dogs can be, um, and indigestion afterwards. But... Uh, we decided to go. She chose the place to eat, and she said, you choose what else you're, we're going to do. And so I made the other plans. We're going to go out to eat. We're going to walk around U Street. We're going to stop at Warby Parker to try on some new glasses. We're going to then go to the Y Down, which is on 14th Street. It's one of my favorite coffee shops in the city. We're going to grab coffee. We're going to walk down 14th Street. We're going to drink coffee. And did I say coffee? Um, yeah, we're going to get some coffee. And we're just going to walk through shops and hang out and enjoy time together. But I had to go and mess all of this up. And so we get to Ben's Chili Bowl. And when we get there, and there's a super, super long line. I'm not a patient person. And I expect there not to be lines in my life. And so I like line up in this line. And I'm like standing there tapping my foot like, OK, come on. like. I just want a chili dog, come on. Like, and so we get about 
three quarters, not even three quarters, like maybe a quarter of the way in the line. And I'm like checking my watch and I'm like, oh, okay, like come on. And then finally two seats at the bar uh, open up and so we just like go and sit there. And then we're sitting there and no joke, 30 minutes later, I still haven't placed an order. And I'm like, this was supposed to be quicker to sit at the counter and order here but Brittany, they're not even making eye contact at me. Like, why aren't they making eye contact? They see I'm not eating, they're not making eye contact. Like, come on, like, hello, give me my food, but at least just let me place an order. I'm thirsty, come on. And I'm just complaining, I'm, I'm being a jerk. And I forget to realize that Brittany's sitting right next to me and my beautiful wife just wants to spend time with me. She just wants to like go on a date and not hear me complain and I'm just like, yeah, I feel really small and little now. Um, but in the middle of this, I'm just like, come on, like, this is horrible. And so finally, 30 minutes later, we get our food. Uh, and I look at my watch, and I'm pulling up Warby Parker's directions, because I'm always thinking a step ahead. And I look, and Warby Parker closed five minutes from that point. I'm like, are you kidding me? You're not, you're not supposed to close. You're supposed to stay open until I get there. And so we finish eating, and I'm, I'm like frustrated. I'm like, the whole plan's ruined. It's ruined. I, like, this whole date night is ruined. And so we're walking, and we're going to lie down to get some coffee. And I finally, I'm like, okay, coffee's going to fix all of this. It's going to be good. And so we walk in the lie down, door opens. I go in, and the barista's, hey, sorry, we're closed. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? Who closes at 7 o'clock on a Saturday in D.C.? And I don't say that, but I'm thinking it. And I'm like, I'm thinking, maybe if I tell him his hours were wrong on Google Maps, he'll give me a cortado. <laughs> no, he didn't. He's just like, I'm sorry, man. And so I like walk out, and I'm like, ah, okay, my entire plan's ruined. The entire date's ruined. And I, I would love to stand here and say that I like recovered well and didn't make a big deal out of it. But I did, and then it's like the rest of the night, I'm like, I feel like a total jerk. And why is that? Because I'm here with my wonderful wife on a date. All I can think about is how inconvenient it was for me. In my schedule that everything closed, I single-handedly ruin it, but Paul says love is patient. Or another way of saying this, love is long-suffering. And love is not irritable. And I was neither of these. Oh, <laughs> I definitely wasn't patient. I was very short-suffering. And I was very irritable. So what becomes of us, this whole side of us that suffers short, that has a short fuse, that's easily provoked and easily complains and easily grumbles and easily gets angry and easily criticizes? For us to show love, the answer is this, it must die. To love like this, like Paul talks about, is to die to ourselves. If I'm to be like this, something in me has to die. My strong craving for a trouble-free life has to die. My need for an uninterrupted schedule must die, and my demand that frustrations and interference get out of my way has to die. We simply cannot love the way that Paul describes until we die. 
It sounds very grim. You're like, oh, great, last CNW and talking about death. That's awesome. But I'm talking about dying to our own selves, dying to the things that we can hold on to, and then other people suffer. Let's take the descriptions of love in the middle of verse 4. It says, love is not boastful or proud. This is another one that's really hard for me. We love to have much made of us. I think all of us do. We like to be admired. We like it when people notice our successes and miss our failures. We like it when we hear people say nice things about us. But we don't like it when people make fun of us or criticize us or bring critiques or laugh at us or humiliate us. So what's happened is that we've developed these strategies for minimizing our failures and maximizing our success. We tend to draw attention to the one and cover over the other. But there's also these subtle, more refined, acceptable ways of expressing our pride, like bringing the conversation back again and again to ourselves and what we've done. Or even, by, even more subtly, by constantly talking about our woundedness, our sadness, or about how badly things have gone for us. Self-pity and boasting are a form of pride. They're both forms of pride. One of those is pride in the heart of the weak, and the other is pride in the heart of the strong. So Paul says here, love is not boastful or proud. That is, it does not speak much about itself and is not puffed up with its achievements or too concerned about its hurts. Love is other-directed, not self-consumed. So, so many times our pride comes out in us being um, arrogant and like, oh, I think so highly of myself, but also our pride can come out and, oh, I'm so lowly and so broken that God can't do anything with me. And then it becomes all about us in that way as well. So this means that this massive craving inside of our hearts has to die if we're going to love. If love is humble and other-directed, then love equals death. This glory-loving, self-exalting, attention-seeking, whining, pouting, self-pitying me has to die in order to love others. Let's take a look through these descriptions and what it means to die in each of these areas. First off, being patient. It means dying to your desire for an untroubled life. Having no jealousy means dying to your desire for unshared affection. Not boasting means dying to the desire to call attention to our successes. Not being rude means dying to the desire to express ourselves offensively. Not demanding our own way means dying to the dominance of our preferences. Not being irritable means dying to the need for no frustrations. Not keeping records of wrongs means dying to the desire for revenge. These are just some of these instances of what love is and how we die to ourselves in this. So the question that I have to ask you is are you willing to pay the price for love? As we close tonight and as the band comes back up, Paul wraps up this section starting in verse 8. He says, Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages, 
and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture, but when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. We're going to take a pause right here as we look at this passage, because this passage is actually used a lot um, as somewhat concrete evidence for those saying that the gifts of the Spirit have ceased as part of the early church. They would say that when the time of perfection comes, it means when the entire scriptures are canonized and put together. But as we continue on in the next verse, we have to look in context. And what this is actually being talked about is when the second coming of Christ, when Christ comes back for his church, it's when these things will cease. As we read verses 11 and 12, we have to look in what makes more sense, the completion of scripture or the second coming of Jesus. So let's continue on. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then when scriptures are completed or when Christ comes back, I'd say the latter, we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then when Christ comes back, I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Paul says here, the gifts are great. Gifts of the Spirit are awesome. Bring life into the church, but there's so much more meaning in them when love is shown and when love is behind them. Paul's exhorting the believers of the Corinthian church and us today to take these things seriously. To no longer think and reason as children, but to grow up and become mature followers of Christ who focus on others before ourselves. Paul closes this section with this. Let these three, or these three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Let love be your highest goal, but you should also desire the special abilities the Spirit gives. I love the wording of that. Let love be your highest goal. I think so much we focus on what we're doing or not doing in Christianity or what rules we're breaking or what rules we're following, and then we're just becoming a form of a Pharisee. Let love be your highest goal. James 5 talks about loving others by speaking truth and love. Part of what Christians get the bad reputation for is that, oh, hey, we speak truth, but we don't do that in love. That we talk about God's holiness and what he stands for and what he's against and the justice that he brings, but we forget the whole fact that there is a God of love and a God of mercy that seeks us out, that finds us in the middle of our sin that makes us a work in progress to make us more into the image of Christ. It comes to my mind as we talk about love is the fact that Jesus says, no man has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. As we talk about love today, these aspects of what love is, I've heard a pastor say before that they also talk about this is God as well. God is patient. He's kind. He's not envious. He's not boastful. I think I need God's patience more than anything. 
I need God's patience with me. I trust that he's loving. Trust that he's good, but I need him to be patient with me. And so Jesus says, no man has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. We read John 3.16 earlier that says, for God to love the world, he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We've talked earlier this semester about this life being abundant here and now, but also an eternal life that Jesus gives us so much more to live for. And so tonight, as we wrap up the semester, as we get excited about baptisms next week, I wanted to give everyone an opportunity as we wrap up the semester to maybe respond to that. Maybe you're in a place in the God that you view as impatient. He isn't kind. This definition of love isn't the God that you know or the God that you've heard of. I want to say that the God that I serve is and he's seen through the person of Jesus. So if I could have you bow your heads, close your eyes. I just want to have a moment, maybe a moment with each of you in this room. I believe the Holy Spirit before the service was speaking and saying, there are people that are going to be here tonight that have never known my love. They think they have, but they haven't. If that's you, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the love of Christ tonight. That's you in the room and you're saying, I want to experience the love of God. I want to experience this Jesus. That's you. Raise your hand. Just a gesture of faith saying, God, I believe you see me. I believe you are wanting to work in me. If you're in the room tonight and you have experienced the love of God, but maybe you haven't felt that for a while. Maybe you're like, God, I need your patience. I need your kindness. I've got so distracted by the worldly view of God that I think you're angry and malicious. That's you as well, Rachel. Then last but not least, if you're here, you're full of God's love. You're like, I am on fire for the Lord you to ask yourself, am I willing to pay the price for love? Am I willing to die to myself so that I can love others better? How can I love those in my community and outside this community better? Let love be your highest goal. remind us of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote prophetically before he laid down his life for the sake of the gospel. He says, when Christ calls a man or when Christ calls a woman, he bids them come and die. What do you have to die to in yourself? To respond to God's love and to love others in a fuller way. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for a love that seeks us out, that is deep, that's wide, that nothing can break. God, thank you for being patient with me, for being kind and generous, for always coming and seeking me out. God, I ask that those who have come to you for the first time, that God, they would encounter you tonight. That God, those who want a fresh awakening of your love in their lives, that God, you would pour that out. 
God, we wouldn't be a community that's all about going and doing things for you and forgetting how to love others. God, this would change our community in the way we work. God, be honored, glorified in us, in Jesus' name.